This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You'll find the full episode available for purchase in the music section of the iTunes Store or at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash store. For unlimited access to our back catalog, you can become a PEL citizen at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash membership. Membership also includes access to discussion groups with other listeners, as well as ad-free versions of current episodes and a host of other bonus content, all available from a single, convenient feed that you can use with a variety of podcast apps. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some folks who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 49 is something like, are we really free? And we read Michel Foucault's 1975 book, Discipline and Punish, at least the first uh, few chapters of it. For a link to this text and other information, check out partiallyexaminedlife.com. My name is Mark Linton-Meyer, heard by you all, yet hearing none of you from Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> This is Seth Paskin in Austin, Texas. This is Wes Allen in Boston, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey, panoptically from Middleton, Wisconsin. <laughs> this is Katie McIntyre from New York, New York. Wow, five people. We've never done that before. There might be an explosion of some sort. So Katie, how did you get in on this? Well, I am currently dissertating on Michel Foucault. At Columbia, right? Yep, that's right. I started having an interest in Foucault as an undergraduate, and it stuck with me. And she's one of the people when I was spamming various graduate uh, departments to tell them about the podcast who actually replied to me and said, that's great. And then I looked her up and saw that she was a Foucault person. I immediately asked her to be on a Foucault episode, and that was like a year and a half ago, I believe. Wow. So. See, spam can lead to good things. Yeah, you guys were <laughs> hilarious. I was sucked in. What can I say? Ah. Uh, before we go further, I want to say this podcast is supported by our listeners. There's a $1 suggested donation if you like what we're doing here. Thanks to all of you that paid that last time around and or purchased the recordings, t-shirt, music, and other things from our website. And a special big thanks to the big donors, which this time were Sean Parker, Marcus Neugurg, and Scott Davis. We also have a sponsorship for this episode from Audible. In any case, I hope you do not hate us because there was a commercial there. <laughs> <laughs> And that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's more to come on the commercial front. <laughs> Maybe. If the sponsors are worthy, I am free within the structure set out by the man. System. I'm trying to speak Foucault and failing very badly. Yeah. I don't think Foucault says the man wants in this. That's just the translation. If it was German, it would be das Mann for sure. For sure. You've boiled it down to 60s jargon. The system. He was on the tail end of it. He was very influenced by that whole thing. I was reading his biography and how he was in the Communist Party when he was younger in the 50s, but really wasn't very active. But then he was very active as a general liberal rabble rouser and like getting things, fighting with police and stuff. Which biography? I'm curious. This was just on Wikipedia. That's, oh, that's okay. the extent of oh, my two second research. Katie, tell us about why you love him. What is cool about his life or his work? His life, I'm not getting into. It's a whole Pandora's box. But what's interesting about his work is the ways in which he gets us to question certain aspects of our lives that we sort of take for granted as just being normal or very natural or somehow necessary. He tries to unhinge all of that, I think, pretty successfully. 
Do you have a dissertation topic? Yeah. So Foucault's got his ideas about power and mm -hmm. how they shape individuals and what we as individuals even take ourselves to be. And there's this criticism in the secondary literature that this makes everything too deterministic, that we're not free in our actions. We just do what this thing called power tells us to do. So if that's the case, then how could we ever criticize these systems that we're in? What would be the basis for such a criticism? What would be the resources that individual actors would have to level such a criticism? Answering this question first requires a lot of clarifications to be made about Foucault's work. There's some misinterpretation going on. And once we see that, we actually have a lot of options. It's going to be okay. That's the message. <laughs> One of the criticism of Foucault relies on a kind of interpretation of a deterministic dynamic that all power is Newtonian, essentially. A microphysics of power. Yeah, a Newtonian microphysics of power. Efficient cause, you know, that whole nine yards. That's a way of understanding it. So the idea that I think is wrong is that power somehow causes our actions or causes yeah. our thoughts. Actually, what I'm working on right now is trying to demonstrate that it's not actually a relationship of cause, but one of motivation pushing us in a direction, but not a relationship of cause in the scientific sense. And that makes all the difference in the world. Well, this particular book wasn't so much about like Nietzsche's will to power, right? And right. Foucault describes himself as a Nietzschean. So yes, listeners, go listen to our Nietzsche genealogy of morals episode. Which uh, was awesome. Yes. Because <laughs> he's giving throughout in this book and in a lot of his other works is giving a very a historical story that very much is like the story Nietzsche gives, but with a lot more actual historical detail and research seemingly into it. Whereas for Nietzsche, will to power might be something like Freud's id or some kind of causal force within us. Power. We do everything for the sake of power. It seems like at least in this work, we're sort of all victims of power. And, and in fact, power doesn't even necessarily have to be exerted by an individual. It could sort of be set up in the system or something. From that standpoint, what you're saying about us being motivated by power, well, the motivation is because there are these powers that we're being subjected to and kind of influencing us to do things in certain ways. Is that what right. you're talking about? Or are there just yeah. other works? Yeah, that's the general idea. It persists in at least the works of the mid to late 70s. I mainly want to understand what power is. And since we have someone who's read a lot of Foucault, I hadn't read him since I was an undergrad, and I wasn't sure I understood what power was then either. So before getting into discipline, is there a way for me to understand what he means by power? And I assume it's just a perfectly ordinary <laughs> French word. It's not the same thing as like dunamis or what Aristotle would talk about. No, no. You have asked the question. So what are the six answers about it? So I'll tell you what I think the answer is. Can you also tell us what other people think, too? Yes, I <laughs> Tell will. me what I think. Well, no, I mean, you have certainly read more of the secondary literature than I have, given that I have read none of it. So it would be interesting to hear your uh, presentation of what the controversies are. Sure, you're in luck. This is chapter one of the dissertation. I, I'm working <laughs> What is power? Writing it right now. Perfect. Discipline is merely one form that power takes. These are not synonymous terms. I think that's going to be one of the first problems you encounter in the secondary literature is a conflation between Foucault's general notion of power and Foucault's elaboration of discipline. 
just for listeners, so we're not even really going to talk much about discipline today, but it's what you think it means. It's like the, what yeah. the military does. It's what your teacher is doing to make you sit down and do your work. That's not a technical term. Yes. It doesn't necessarily imply punishment. Wouldn't training be included under discipline? Absolutely. I think training is the key word here. Yes. Okay. But yeah. self-training too. I mean, in the perfectly ordinary sense. If I discipline myself, if I try to do something and I follow a regimen and I'm very disciplined about that, those are all copacetic with Foucault. Yes, absolutely. This is what schools are for, for getting you to discipline yourself, to internalize the discipline that's been imposed on you from the teacher or the military officer or the factory foreman. It's the same figure recurring in all of these contexts. And the goal is to get you to discipline yourself so that power works ever more efficiently. I'm linking this back to the Nietzsche episode we did. Really implicitly, Nietzsche is talking a lot about discipline and the genealogy of morals, but it's related to will. And the idea is that when you say you will do something, when you make a promise, that you can keep it. And that takes a certain kind of self-control and training. I think this is exactly related to what Nietzsche says in the genealogy about how you breed an animal with the right to make yeah. promises. That's just exactly. what Foucault's talking about. Yeah. So power is not discipline. So what is the So what's power? Looking at Foucault's works as a whole, I think what you get is a picture of power in which power is something that's rather uninteresting. It's the ways that actions shape other actions. Power emerges in interaction between individuals. So what this means for Foucault is that it implies that a series of negative claims Power is not something that people have. It's not a commodity. It's not something that's exercised on individuals themselves, but on their actions. So whenever you have a situation of one action motivating another, power emerges in that relationship. Power isn't either good or bad. It's just something that happens. And it seems like, and, and I might just be relying on this particular text too much, but his focus on the idea of surveillance, I think we can link that to a lot of different things we've talked about. So for instance, for Freud, the way people are disciplined is that they, Freud talks about the development of the superego by identifying with, say, teachers and parents. And the idea is that you are trying to achieve a certain kind of recognition. And then we talked about similar concepts of recognition and say, Hegel and Rousseau. So the idea seems to be that recognition is playing a critical role here in the exercise of power. In other words, that we are attuned to what other people desire, what other people approve of, what other people disapprove of. Um, that's one of the mechanisms of power. I think that's a connection that sometimes gets overlooked. Foucault doesn't exactly talk about recognition per se, but I think that's what he has in mind when he's talking about are conforming with the norm. Why do we do that? Well, we need to be seen as fitting into this society and we need to be recognized as yeah. part of the group. Let me use that answer to segue to what could be, say, by Seth, a summary of the text. <laughs> <laughs> and my segue is to connect it to my the question that I opened this with, which I was trying to figure out, you know, what is the question? Is it what's the purpose of punishment? But as I got into the book, I felt like as far as modern application is, the reason why we care about this whole inquiry that he's doing here in this book is, are we really free? That is, 
if we understand the power relations around us, and it's not just the man is out to get you, and that's how they get you. It's not just that kind of conspiracy theory power stuff. It's every time you are influenced by something, that's something exerting power over you. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But I guess if it's the kind of thing that when you do this examination and you find that the things that have power over you are not things that you would like to have power over you, then you find that, in fact, you are not free. You might have thought you were, but this is a false consciousness, as the Marxists might say. Well, I'm a little wary of this talk of freedom, because I think freedom is in opposition to being caused or overpowered. I'm sympathetic to Hume's compatibilism, the idea is that, yes, you can be motivated, you can have a certain type of personality and predispositions, which are the results of power in some sense, right? And that doesn't really mean that you're not free. The concept of freedom that you're trying to save in that isn't really coherent on further examination and this idea of radical freedom where we're meant to be unmoored from our character and from our tendencies and all those sorts of things. Well, I was trying to be neutral about a theory of freedom in the way I was setting that forth, but it's perfectly compatible with a more Nietzschean idea of freedom. Yeah, you're right. Where if I sort of identify with what I'm doing, then I'm free. If I'm doing something under coercion or covert coercion or because I'm being dominated in some way, then I'm not free. That's all. Where coercion doesn't have to be gunpoint, right? You could just have bad habits. I think you're right, but it does connect to political freedom, given what I little bit I said about his uh, biography. Like that, I think, is his ultimate motivation here is he thinks Marxism is too much of a straitjacket. He's not down with the Marxist theory in terms of the overly simplistic analysis a Marxist would give of history. He's very non-reductionist. He wants to give the historical details and do an analysis like that. I'm just going to give the readers a heads up that if you go into this book thinking this is a discussion of freedom or how free you are in a society, the first paragraph you read is going to disabuse you of that notion very quickly. May I quote? Please. Please do. Oh, great. It's such a wonderful passage. This is the very first paragraph of this book. I knew you would like this, Seth. On 2nd of March, 1757, Damien's the Regicide was condemned to make an amende en abre before the main door of the Church of Paris, where he was to be taken and conveyed in a cart, wearing nothing but a shirt, holding a torch of burning wax weighing two pounds. Then in said cart, to the Place de Greve, where on a scaffold that will be erected there, the flesh will be torn from his breasts, arms, thighs, and calves with red-hot pinchers, his right hand holding the knife with which he committed the said parricide, burnt with sulfur, and on those places where the flesh will be torn away, poured molten lead, boiling oil, burning resin, wax, and sulfur melted together, and then his body drawn and quartered by four horses, and his limbs and body consumed by fire, reduced to ashes, and his ashes thrown to the winds. And that's just the short version of the... Yeah, this goes on for three pages. <laughs> yes. And we get the longer account. And we're not going to read any more details like that because you get the idea. And there's plenty of it. But those were the good old days where power was more obvious. It was wielded more explicitly and obviously, right? Right, exactly. That's what's interesting about these new disciplinary forms of power is that they operate surreptitiously. You don't even notice the ways in yeah. which you're being influenced by them. 
Yeah. So in a way, it's more dangerous because it's easy to identify the source of power when you're looking at a model of sovereignty or the spectacle of punishment. It's easy to say, oh, that's the source of my domination. Let's just get mm -hmm. rid of the king. But it's much harder when it's masked and distributed in these institutions in which we ourselves participate and all of that. Yes. So it takes Foucault a little while to get to the point that Katie just brought up from this original description of this torture and at the beginning of the book. He starts here, obviously, for a purpose. And the purpose, I think, is he wants to talk about the transition of a system of punishment that was in place, I guess, prior to the revolution. I don't want to go so far as to align it specifically with a particular historical period, but... He said 18th to 19th. <clears throat> yeah, 18th century is the before. Most crimes were essentially violent and affected on persons' bodies, and then the punishment was on the offender's body. That the system of punishment that existed was essentially to extract some kind of justice. I don't know if that's the right word. Revenge. Or some kind of revenge, retribution on the body of the criminal. This was done very publicly as an expression of the sovereign's power and with the complicity of the public. And he needs to establish this because he's going to talk about how it transitions from that to this idea of discipline and system, which is going to go along with the change in the social order as well. And this is a good place to bring up so I put up a post on partiallyexaminedlife.com before we recorded this a couple of weeks and invited people to ask questions. So there's one question by a guy named who calls himself Voltard on there, where he says, uh, Foucault dismisses concepts such as human nature, universal human rights, justice, humanism, objective truth, etc. And is he obsessed with what is perhaps the central issue of his work, namely power? I don't get it. <laughs> We've already said a little bit about what his concept of power is and why he's concerned with it. But in terms of this narrative, the thing that he's trying to fight against is it's very natural to think, oh, those people were a bunch of savages. And then we got the notions of human rights. We had great reformers like Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill, perhaps, and a bunch of French guys whose names I don't remember, who argued that we should punish more humanely. And so we started right. doing that and the sovereign lost power and just everybody became more free and happy. And that's exactly what Foucault wants to argue against. Yes, there was a change. It was more a change just because it wasn't working that well, the old system, for various reasons. But power is still exerted in the new system. It's just in a different, more subtle way. Right. Yeah, well, the old system was becoming a little more dangerous for the sovereign. Foucault puts this emphasis on the ways in which things could go wrong and the crowd might end up sympathizing with the person who was being publicly tortured and executed. And when power is wielded in such obvious ways, it subjects you to some danger, right? It's when it goes underground that you really, you get a much nicer and uh, safer form of control. He also makes the point maybe later on that this genealogy depends a lot on the development of the mercantile economy and other forces in the social order that makes it much more palatable for such a rise of discipline. In fact, it's not clear to me that he would say that discipline was born exactly. Maybe he would say that, but it seems to me it's a question of which kind of display or form of power comes to dominate within a society. And that it's certainly not as if there wasn't such a thing as discipline before 1800s. No, yeah. I think you're right. right. You're right. Yeah. I mean, the Roman armies were full of discipline, right? 
<laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. This is another feature of power in general for Foucault is that it's going to be self-organizing. So you do end up with fluctuations in which specific form of power becomes most pervasive. As norms get reinforced more effectively by certain means, those means become the dominant means. Did Foucault ever analyze Sparta? Not as far as I know. Because that seems to me like the, per the perfect example of something almost like a panoptic society. It's incredibly disciplined. There are specific rules for everybody. Everybody knows what everybody else is doing. And it's obviously and self-consciously a form of education, both militarily and culturally. We don't have to try to make that analysis ourselves. It just it strikes me that it can't possibly be the case that discipline as a form of power is, is something that's sort of born now. It has got to be more to do with the way it, this kind of transition. It would probably be unfair to characterize Foucault as saying that discipline is something that emerges with the rise of the middle class and mercantilism and the overthrow of the monarchy and this sort of ushering into a modern industrial age. His concept of discipline in this book is tied to the system of observation and the idea of a society that is ordered under this power structure that Katie mentioned, where people are essentially influenced to police themselves out of fear of being caught. But I feel like we might be jumping ahead and we should roll back a little bit. There's a reason he spends a fair amount of time on this initial section, establishing what he calls an economy of punishment underneath the sovereign and the system that we have. And then it transitions from that to this other model. Well, let's return to that criticism later, though, after we because I think it's a, Dylan's question there is important. I think it's a fair question. So where would you like us to begin? I was flabbergasted at how long we spent on punishment when it seems to be his most important conclusion had to do with discipline. So trying to lay out why it matters so much to spend 150 pages on um, punishment and the transition. And he has really three stages, right? Or three ways of organizing punishment, monarchical law, reforming jurists, and the prison. And then there's, he calls them three technologies of power regarding punishment. And then it's from there that we have the transition into this new form of discipline. Saying why he does that and why it's necessary is, I think, worthwhile. So why don't we talk about some of the characteristics of the system of punishment that he lays out in the initial section and this idea that punishment is a manifestation of the power of the sovereign. So a crime against the body politic is a crime against the king. The king is in a position where the, the king needs to express and maintain his power over the populace. And punishment in this very public forum is one way in which that is accomplished. But it's important that there's a whole system that supports this model that's going to turn out to change quite a bit over time. So, for example, the accused is not permitted to view the evidence against him or her. There's a panel of judges or some sort of an executor or magistrate who represents the sovereign, and he decides whether the accused is guilty or innocent. Foucault makes a point of talking about how torture was employed as a way to ensure that the accused would confess. So in other words, guilt is already determined 
without what we would consider to be a trial or a fair hearing or an evidentiary inquisition. The, the idea of the inquisition existed, but it all takes place in secrecy behind closed doors. So that's important that we understand that when the crime occurs and then the criminal is incarcerated pending the punishment, all of what we would consider to be standard mechanisms of the judicial system are in secret. The punishment itself, however, is quite public. And this will become important later, obviously, because those two things are flip-flopped when we get to the system of discipline. So he does spend a fair amount of time talking about how this is really almost like a theater and less what we would consider to be a system of justice. Punishment is tied not so much to a system of justice, but to a system of torture where the criminal is essentially compelled under this power structure to take part or is tortured into complicity. What's the conceit behind that structure, the kind of defense that you would make of it? Ignoring the torture part, the idea of having an authority that makes decisions for those they have authority over, it's like a family. The kids don't make decisions, really. The parents make decisions for the good of the children, and that's their job. And if they don't do that, then they've failed in that job. And if you take it seriously, ignoring potentials of corruption and stuff like that, a king is the father of his subjects and is responsible for their well-being. And therefore, his judgment is the only judgment that makes sense. I'm saying that only to try to make sense of why you would start with that kind of system. There's a reason why this structure exists and there's a way of defending it even if it doesn't hold up in the end. And that's what I'm trying to reach for. It's not about capricious torture. That's not the goal of it, right? Absolutely not. No, certainly not. It has its own logic of operation, or it wouldn't have been implemented in the first place. The public spectacle of torture works, right? You don't want to be tortured. So you don't do whatever it was that that guy did. <laughs> the one who's being tortured, right? I mean, it makes very good sense. And in terms of the sovereignty issue, the transgressive act, the crime is, as you said, a crime against the sovereign. And the sovereign's power has to be restored publicly. The public has to have the absolute knowledge that it is the sovereign who lays down the law. That's why this exercise of power has to be so public. It's reestablishing who's in charge. Right. It's described as a, if you commit a crime, it's an act of war on your part. Right. Yeah. I'm brought to mind of that image of uh, the sovereign on the cover of the standard edition of Hobbes' Leviathan. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking of that. Yep. The criminal act is an act against, is essentially a metaphorical crime against the body of the sovereign. And so the punishment is extracted on the body of the criminal. Yeah. Well, that image, the body of the sovereign is composed of a bunch of the people, right, Seth? Mm -hmm. And so Dylan was saying, what's the conceit behind this? And when you said that, and the way I think about it when I read it is, this is sort of the Hobbesian archetype in play, that he's talking about how punishment and how power works in the dynamic of the Hobbesian sovereign. I just want to point out the importance here of the punishment being enacted on the body, because this, I think, is going to be an important switch in disciplinary power. It's the body of the criminal that's punished. And the only relevant question is, was this act committed by this person? They don't 
care about questions that are going to come up later. Like, what kind of person is this? Does this person have a criminal nature? There's nothing like that. There's no reference to what's going on in the mind of the individual, and there's no effort to change the minds of individuals. It's about discouraging criminal actions only. Mm, right. Yeah, that's a critical point. Did anybody else feel like this is like retributive justice in like the old school, like biblical sense? Well, he says, I mean, that's part of the reason for the extreme continuing to torture the body after the person is dead, bringing the person <laughs> to the point of death and like reviving them and then torturing some more to the point of death. These things that if you try to actually implement an eye for an eye, then uh, if somebody does something bad enough, you, you can't, you can't implement that. And for instance, a regicide, since you're just a peon subject and you're killing or even attempting to kill somebody whose life is worth so much more than yours, then by that Old Testament logic, you should be killed multiple times. Yeah. He refers to oh, yeah. some, somebody writing a political essay of like, you know, why hanging is not bad enough or something. That brings up another point too, sort of piggybacking on what Katie said. It's very focused on the body. It's just a question of guilt or innocence. There's no such thing as a mitigating circumstance, not interested in reforming the criminal, not interested in understanding motivations. Nobody cares, or I should say it's not part of the, as Foucault would say, the economy of this system exactly. to account for those things. And another aspect of it is that it's completely up to the discretion of the authorities in the particular case to determine the punishment. So this particular punishment is an extreme example, but it's not unique. And that you get into this system where they're trying to devise tortures to match what they consider to be the heinousness of the crime, that there's no system or no ledger that says, for this crime, this is the appropriate punishment, or for this crime, this is the appropriate punishment. Instead, in every single case the individuals involved make the decision about what's to be. And that's why you have all of these unbelievably just folks listening. He's got example after example in this book of terrible things that are done to people. It's not sufficient to simply imitate what's previously been done. There's a sense of creativity that comes into play. So it's chaotic, it's uneven, but it all stems from this. It all flows from this authority of the sovereign. So there's a sense in which just by exacting that retribution on the body of the criminal, you're accomplishing the goal within the economy of the system as it stands in that era. And so political economy, this term, he likes to put these slightly disparate terms together, right? Like the microphysics of power we already saw and the technology of the body, these other, other things like that. And so I guess what I was interpreting political economy is talking about is just really how much effort does it take to achieve this political purpose? And that's ultimately what makes this type of a punishment doomed, because if you're doing it in a public spectacle, well, then there's too much risk of the public, for instance, especially if they don't agree with the verdict, rebelling against that. Or he talks about the public taking it as a sign if something goes wrong. So the person is hung, but the scaffold doesn't quite work. And so they, they're not dead yet. So there's a definite sense that, uh, well, you should let them off. That's sort of, it's sort of like a trial by combat. He talks about the executioner being the king's representative in combat with the person to be executed. Of course, very stacked contest. And so that's why I was very illuminated by this phrase, and she shall be hung by the neck until dead. They actually had to say that because sometimes it wouldn't work the first time and they wanted to cut off the people rising up. And uh, so why the thing shifted is all about these calculations of political economy. It, it was just because this is supposed to be a massive deterrent. 
and it didn't work. It didn't work in the uh, shifting times when there were more people and the standard of living was higher and that the types of crimes were less and the political environment was changing. And it just didn't work anymore. Right. He even talks about sort of this cultural realization that the severity of the punishment, the gruesomeness of the punishment was seen to exceed the crime. And that's where the economy of power now is off balance, right? The debt being paid is greater or the punishment is greater than the actual debt owed. And when this was sort of realized on a wide scale, the system couldn't be maintained anymore. It was too open to criticism. Thanks for listening to this Partially Examined Life episode preview. If you're enjoying it so far, you can purchase the full episode in the music section of the iTunes store or at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash store. For unlimited access to our back catalog, you can become a PEL citizen at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash membership. Membership also includes access to discussion groups with other listeners, as well as ad-free versions of current episodes and a host of other bonus content all available from a single, convenient feed that you can use with a variety of podcast apps.